Particle would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast is recording on, the Wajak Noongar people. We would like to pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Western Australia is an interesting case. Our weathered and uh, and water-worn landscape. It does swing between extremes, from periods of drought to periods of intense rainfall. We have a, a fire season that lasts for 365 days of the year. Hi everyone, my name is Owen Cumming and welcome to Particle's brand new series, Elements. Join us this season as we explore Western Australia's relationship with water. Each episode, we'll find out how water influences our land, our culture, our environment, and our future. In this episode, we'll explore the interactions between water and the other primal elements, air, fire, and earth. We're going to follow the changes in how water moves through and interacts with the other elements and hear from experts about how WA is being affected. Water is crucial in Western Australia. In this old, dry landscape, water gives life wherever it moves. The importance of water is woven into the knowledge and stories of WA's traditional owners. The story of the rainbow serpent, Wagu, tells of how he shaped the land in the dreaming and maintains all fresh water. He made rain fall from the sky, filling the lakes and streams. And with the rain, he brought thunder and lightning that sparked fires to rejuvenate the land. His passage carved the valleys, hills and plains in the earth, and he formed the underground rivers. Today, scientists are just as aware of how important water is in WA, and study all the different ways that it influences our state. So please join me as we explore the story of water as it interacts with WA's air, fire and earth. Water flows. That's what it does. We all know that. It flows across oceans, down from mountains in rivers, streams and creeks. But what many of us might not know is that the largest rivers in the world flow through the sky. They're called atmospheric rivers, and they're a big part of the reason why the WA winter in 2022 was seriously wet. I spoke to renowned climate scientist and specialist on atmospheric rivers in Australia, Dr. Kimberly Reed, to find out more. So an atmospheric river is basically a large, we're talking sort of at least 2,000 kilometres, a large narrow region of intense water vapour transport in the lower atmosphere, so at about one to three kilometres high in the atmosphere. You can kind of think of it like a river in the sky. Now, a river in the sky might sound like something out of a fairy tale, but they're actually responsible for transporting water all over the world and happen more frequently than you might think. They're actually pretty common. There's usually maybe five or six on the globe at any one time, but majority of them are beneficial. These rivers in the sky flow over Western Australia in two distinct and different ways, each having different impacts on the state. And so there are two sort of types that occur over Western Australia. There's the southern more traditional atmospheric rivers that form ahead of a cold front and that's because you've got a whole lot of convergence so all this air just flowing towards the one region and it sort of squishes 
all the moisture in the atmosphere together, kind of like squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. The other type you get in WA is your Northwest Cloud Bands, which extends from Broome to Melbourne in the southeast. And that's usually formed when you have a high pressure weather system over southwest WA and a high pressure system over the northeast. And again, what that does is it kind of forces all this moisture to come together in the centre of Australia. All right, so it's all well and good to know that there are rivers of water flowing through the air, but what does that actually mean for Western Australia? Well, it turns out that a big chunk of the rainfall that keeps WA alive comes from atmospheric rivers. So in Western Australia, about 10 to 20% of your annual rainfall comes from atmospheric rivers, with most of that occurring in winter. And in some locations, such as the Gascoyne region, about 40% of your wintertime rainfall comes from atmospheric rivers. Rainfall is essential in a place as hot and dry as WA. It helps to grow crops and keeps our state's biodiversity and wilderness areas thriving. But with atmospheric rivers contributing so much rainfall, it begs the question, can they be providing too much of a good thing? With the east coast of Australia having been absolutely devastated by flooding this year, could these intense channels of water in the sky pose a threat of something similar happening in WA? So majority of the time in WA in particular, they are beneficial. You get maybe sort of 10% of the most extreme rainfall events in Western Australia come from atmospheric rivers. So majority of them are just providing light rainfall that's useful. They're not going to make the news. It's when they're really big, obviously, that they cause a lot of damage and that's when we pay attention to them. So WA is actually in quite a good position because atmospheric rivers are your friend. Atmospheric rivers have been, for the most part, a good thing for WA. But will they stay that way? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's last report has said in no uncertain terms that extreme rainfall events that cause flooding are going to increase. With predictions of one in a hundred year floods threatening to do massive amounts of damage in WA, it can be a sobering thought to consider what WA's future with rainfall, flooding and atmospheric rivers might look like. What we're seeing in international studies is that atmospheric rivers are likely to become more intense and more frequent. However, with the position of Western Australia, we're also seeing this southward shift in cold fronts. And that's why Southwest WA has been experiencing a decline in rainfall over the past few decades. So as the pathways that atmospheric rivers used to follow through the sky begin to drift southward, that nice, light, beneficial rainfall that used to be our friend falling over the southwest is going to be falling out over the ocean instead. And that's not even the end of the issue. The atmospheric rivers we do experience might not be so friendly in the future. When they do occur and when they do make landfall, because the atmosphere is warmer, you've got more moisture in the atmosphere, the atmospheric rivers that do hit land will likely be more intense over WA, especially in the northern regions. Australian weather, and in particular Western Australian weather, often has swings between drought and periods of intense rainfall. But as our atmospheric rivers start shifting their pathways, periods of drought may start hitting our state a lot harder. Western Australia, it's more about the lack of atmospheric rivers that's the concern because they provide this beneficial rainfall. So a lack of these sorts of weather systems is when you'll get drought and 
increased fire risk. So with water moving through the air over WA in increasingly unstable ways, we could see weather and rainfall patterns becoming more and more erratic. And that instability in rainfall has the potential to turn WA into a tinderbox. Everyone that lives in WA, everyone that's ever been to WA, knows that WA is a hot place. Historically, WA has relied on consistent rainfall to temper that heat, especially in the southwest. But over the last few years, we've seen wet, fertile winters followed by long, hot, dry summers. That lack of rainfall, coupled with scorching temperatures for weeks on end, are a recipe for one thing, fire. Western Australia is an interesting case because you know, we're a very big st state and we span a vast area going from the, the hot tropical uh, conditions in the, in the Kimberley right through to the, the cool southern oceans. And so really we have a, a fire season that lasts for 365 days of the year. That's Dr Lockie McCaw, a bushfire scientist and the former senior principal research scientist at the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions here in WA. A big part of what the DBCA does in Western Australia is look at how and why bushfires occur across WA's forests and shrublands. So some of the factors that would make fires more likely to occur include where we've got hot, dry weather that results in, in dry fuels and also uh, where you have strong winds that will lead to fire developing very rapidly. Obviously, the stronger the wind, the faster the fire spreads and also where you've got abundant continuous fuels like you might have after a, a very good growing season where you've got dense grass and crops along roadsides and in, in paddocks. And also there are, there are some weather patterns that are quite conducive to bushfire starts because you could have widespread uh, lightning ignition. And those weather conditions may be getting more and more common. Research on bushfires in WA has found that changes in temperature and rainfall patterns are changing the times of year that we would typically expect fire to occur. In, in the southwest, you know, there's you know, a clearly and well-documented trend of increasing temperature and reduced rainfall, particularly the, the rainfall that we uh, you know, traditionally experienced in the autumn and the early winter. Much of that is you know, now vanished. Um, and that has had a, an effect of prolonging the fire season by weeks or sometimes by even a a month or more um, so that it now extends into late May or June when traditionally they are expected to be sort of cooler and damper times. So I think there's no question that in the southwest we're tending to experience longer fire seasons. As well as looking at the history of fire in WA, scientists are growing increasingly concerned with the models and predictions of how fire will affect WA in the future as the state gets hotter, drier and experiences more extreme weather. You can certainly look at trends and patterns and say uh, the lengthening fire season in southern WA and the increased likelihood of summer heat waves, they're certainly consistent with the expectations that we're seeing for most climate change predictions. Potential changes in, in climate could have a, a major effect on you know, the scale of fire activity. So in, in the northern parts of Western Australia and some of the eastern 
sort of interior, there's actually been a trend of increasing rainfall, um, mostly from ex-tropical cyclones and a period of time that will make fires less likely. But then if you have abundant grass growth and when that grass eventually dries off, you've got the potential for it to, to fuel um, very extensive fires. And when Lockie says very intense fires, he doesn't just mean big. He means really big. In certain remote areas of WA, like in the Pilbara or in the Great Western Woodlands, fire can regularly spread out over areas covering thousands of square kilometres. And there could be several of those over the course of one fire season. In the hot, dry interior of WA, there's often less rainfall to put out these fires, which could be burning through stores of fuel that have been building up for decades. So the, the fuel from or fuel from bushfire can include uh, you know, dead leaves and twigs on the forest floor. It could be the fine parts of uh, living shrubs, and it can also be um, the bark on standing trees that will burn under under some conditions. Normally, to get um, fuel to ignite, you need a temperature above about 400 degrees, and that could be a flame or it could be a, a glowing ember. Um, or possibly even a very high voltage energy source such as you would get with a lightning strike. Just like in the story of Wagul, lightning can crack down onto the land, bringing fire with it. And it can strike anywhere. As extreme weather events start occurring more often in WA, storms can bring lightning crashing down into remote areas of wilderness, starting enormous blazes anywhere in the state. In the southwest, and again, the agricultural regions, um, lightning typically causes about 20% or you know, one in five uh, bushfires. That does vary from uh, year to year, depending on the weather. But those lightning fires often account for more than 80% of the area that's burnt. And also lightning can often ignite um, a number of fires at the same time. So you know, the resources to control fires are, are then stretched because they're trying to deal with a number of fires at the same time. Uh, and often lightning will ignite fires in places that are remote and very difficult to access. So it can take a long time to actually get there and um, you know, start containing a fire. Lightning is where the story of water meets fire in WA. On the one hand, water falling from the sky in rain allows lush ecosystems to grow. But in that same storm that might bring rain, hot, moist conditions cause more and more friction building the energy until it cracks down to the earth. But while this might be happening more often, fire isn't new to WA. It's an essential part of life here and how the landscape functions. Fire can have many positive effects in our environment as well as being a potentially damaging agent. And so we need to have a balanced view of that and understand the good things about fire. It can be very important for you know, regeneration of plants and vegetation, assist with cycling nutrients, and be a, a positive force in the environment as well as something that can uh, cause damage. But of course, researchers at universities or the DBCA aren't the first ones to figure out the importance of fire in the WA landscape. And that's something people are beginning to recognise more and more. I think another really positive thing too, there's a, a growing realisation of you know, the important role that Aboriginal people had in managing the land and how they used fire. And I think there's a great opportunity to learn from some of their knowledge and their practices as well. And that's, you know, that's received a lot more attention, I guess, in the last four or five years. And I, I think there's you know, some great opportunities that can be harnessed there going into the future. But Aboriginal knowledge doesn't just pertain to our understanding of fire. 
Water falling from the sky might influence where and how fire happens, but Aboriginal people also cared for that water as it flowed across and into the land, shaping geological features and providing water to drink. We can follow the story of water in WA into our next element. Noongar people have always recognised the powerful connection between the water and the earth. Wagul, the rainbow serpent, is said to have formed all the mountains, valleys, rivers and waterways with his passage, even forming the underground rivers and aquifers. Caring for our land is part of caring for our water, and vice versa. Healthy soils and landscapes help feed healthy waterways, which in turn support healthy soils. But certain practices have changed the land, changing the health of the earth beneath our feet, and as a result, it's interrupted the natural passages of water. Perhaps the single biggest change that's been made to the land of WA since Europeans arrived has been the clearing of vegetation from what's now called the wheat belt, and it's had some pretty significant consequences. After clearing, or during the process of clearing, which commenced in the 1850s, Instead of the water being used by the vegetation, the water began, the rainwater began to percolate through the ground and begin to accumulate deep in the soil profile. That water has accumulated in groundwater systems that were either present or have developed since the clearing of the wheat belt and has risen of the order of 10 metres since, maybe 20 metres in, in some of the wetter locations and have been slowly rising at about 10 centimetres per year since clearing began. That was Dr Richard George, a Principal Research Scientist for WA's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, and an expert in WA soils and soil health. Now, on the face of it, rising groundwater might not seem like that big a deal. It might even make it easier for plants to access the water, but there's a catch, and it has to do with the high salt content in WA soils. There's large areas of natural primary salinity that has accumulated in our weathered and water-worn landscape over tens of millions of years. And you see that evidenced by salt lakes, saline streams and vegetation that has a really high salt tolerance. WA soils are old and the natural passages of water through the landscape has meant that some areas have really high salt levels in their surface soil. In those areas, the vegetation have developed a high tolerance to salt and are still able to exist in thriving ecosystems. Unfortunately, soil salinity is becoming an increasing problem in areas where it wouldn't naturally have occurred. We've got natural salinity, but we also have secondary salinity that's developed since the clearing of the wheat belt's vegetation. That secondary salinity occurs when groundwater levels rise too high and the salt that would have been stored deep down in the earth gets carried up by rising groundwater to end up in the soils near the surface. This phenomenon has increased the amount of salt-affected land in WA by orders of magnitude from its natural levels. So now, instead of tens of thousands of hectares salt-affected, we have between about 1.1 and about 1.75 million hectares that we class as salt-affected. This salinization of the soil has had an intense impact on the natural ecosystems of those areas and has been damaging the remnant areas of vegetation that weren't already cleared. 
But for us, one of the biggest consequences has been the effect of salted soils on our agricultural systems. So agriculture um, is impacted in many ways by its soil salinity, and the most obvious is the reduction in the yield of some of our most staple crops. And in at least a million hectares, that yield has reduced to zero. In other words, crops can no longer be grown on those farms or those parts of farms, I should say, because the salinity levels are so high. And it's not just the soil itself that's become unusable. The water, which has historically been used for drinking and irrigation, is facing problems as well. The water in the streams and the creeks that used to run through the non-saline wheat belt going back 100 years, many or most of those streams and creeks and wetlands have now become salt affected. So with this broad swathe of land in WA being so badly impacted, the question becomes, what can we do about it? How can we restore the balance between water and earth that's been disrupted? Well, perhaps the most obvious option is to replant the trees and vegetation that were taken away all those years ago. But that solution raises yet more problems. So it makes sense that the vegetation was once fully um, covering the wheat belt and the water balance of the wheat belt had water tables fairly deep um, and salt levels quite low. But unfortunately, the degree to which we have to replant um, is so extensive, it's almost creating um, 60 to 70% of the wheat belt, maybe even higher back in that perennial vegetation. So you lose a large proportion of the wheat belt if we followed the revegetation only pathways. We simply rely too much on the farmland we have to go back to the way things used to be, even if we could. And if we can't go back, our only option is to move forward. In terms of agriculture and crop production, there are loads of things to be done to try and combat the effects of soil salinity. Through breeding, research and genetics, we're creating crops that produce larger yields and varieties that have higher salt tolerances. With tillage and cropping system advancements, we can grow the same amount of crops with less than half the amount of necessary rainfall. And farmers are now also able to install artificial drainage and pumping systems in their land that help to stop groundwater rise and soil salinity. But these advancements in agricultural practice still come up against the problem of where to get fresh water. At the moment, most of the wheat belt's fresh water is stored in catchment areas whose headwaters were never cleared of vegetation and so don't suffer from problems with salinity. But despite that, most of the water is still pumped from desalination plants on the coast. But agricultural scientists are hoping to change that. That water's moved through pipes into the wheat belt, extensively through about 13,000 kilometres of uh, pipe systems. Um, and instead of importing that water, we would locally use water that would eventually lower water tables. The goal is to install desalination systems in the wheat belt that draw on the reservoirs of groundwater that have built up in those areas. Doing so could help save money, save resources, reduce groundwater levels and provide a source of fresh water to these remote areas. Those groundwater resources representing a storage um, which we can profit from with renewable energy and um, tools like desalination to hopefully give us a, a buffer against some of the uh, next century's uh, responses that climate change will give us. The relationship between water and the other three elements in WA runs deep. 
and the traditional knowledge of Aboriginal people will always be able to help enlighten us about how these natural systems interact and how water helps to shape this state. But in the same breath, we live in a time where conditions are changing rapidly and where we've made changes that can't be reversed. If we're going to be able to continue living in a way that's balanced with the world around us, we need to encompass new ideas into our approach while still respecting that ancient knowledge that's built upon an ingrained understanding of where we live. But most of all, and perhaps now more than ever, we need to appreciate water for the precious resource that it is. This episode of Elements was produced by Owen Cumming. Executive producers are and Michael Gatt. Original music was written by Gabriel Gibbius. Elements is brought to you by Particle. To find out more about all the weird and wonderful science happening in Western Australia, visit particle.scitech.org.au or follow us on social media at ParticleWA.